Let's start your holiday shopping off the right way. Order yourself a copy today of my new book, Christmas Past, The Fascinating Stories Behind Our Favorite Holidays Tradition. It'll keep you feeling festive all season long. Available in hardcover and ebook from Lions Press and as an audiobook from recorded books narrated by yours truly. Available at all your favorite online booksellers. And remember, it makes a great gift. I'm going to tell you a story about an unlikely Christmas tree. I first heard the story from an art historian named Christine Roussel. I'm Christine Roussel. I'm basically an art historian. So we're going to tell you the story together. The story takes place in 1931. You have to realize that that year, 1931, we have the Great Depression. Christmas, of course, was a very different thing during the Depression. And the way that relates to our story is the fact that our story involves a group of demolition workers at a major construction site. Workers who were lucky to have any kind of job at all at that time. And like many families, especially families from the working class, they were struggling just to provide the basic necessities for their families. Which makes it all the more significant that these workers did what they did. Because they... Had gone out and bought a 20-foot high fir and they erected it and then decorated it with garlands handmade by the men's family from tinfoil ends with blasting caps and all sorts of odd stuff. We know that all of this happened because there's a photograph of it. And looking at the photo, there's something that says that this is the kind of Christmas tree and the kind of image that only the Great Depression could have produced. The tree standing amidst the rubble of an enormous construction site, clumsily strewn with some kind of homemade garland. You might think that the photo strikes a gloomy tone, but no, it's just the opposite, because... It shows this ragged group of men about to receive their wages from the paymaster, and behind them stands this tree that they had purchased and erected, and these men are lucky to be working. So it has a sense that they're looking forward to, or hoping for the future, having erected their tree and getting paid and standing in the midst of rubble. So it alone is an iconic picture. But it was also iconic for another reason. Because that decision by that group of workers in 1931, that gesture of hope and longing, that symbol of Christmas spirit was also, unofficially anyway, the first Christmas tree displayed at Rockefeller Center in New York City. A lot has changed in the 90-plus years since that iconic photo, but one thing hasn't. The annual tree display in New York City and the spectacle of the lighting ceremony has become a major cultural event for the whole country. It has become America's Christmas tree. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. Christine Roussel isn't only an art historian, nor is she only the author of The Art of Rockefeller Center. For the last 12 years, she's been Rockefeller Center's official archivist, responsible for a vast collection of materials chronicling the history of Rockefeller Center, including, of course, the annual Christmas tree displays. Now, our story picks up again after that iconic scene with the workers in 1931. There was no tree of any kind at Rockefeller Center in 1932, but all of that changed the following year. Then 1933 became the first year of the official Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. It's still in the midst of construction of Rockefeller Center, so you have to get the idea that a couple of the buildings like Radio City Music Hall had been completed, and the RCA building, which is now 30 Rock, its steel structure had been completed. So you have a sense of things developing. That first tree was a 40-foot balsam with 700 electric lights, a pretty big deal at the time. 
and the ceremony for that first tree, while it was a large public spectacle, the tone and emphasis was a bit different from what we're used to today. It was recognizing Christmas basically as a religious event more than the Christmases that we see today at Rockefeller Center, which are kind of a great festival for everybody and everything, you know, concerns being joyful and being happy and being full of fun at Christmas time and doesn't necessarily lean on the religious aspects of it anymore as much as it did in the beginning. Now, again, all of this happened during the Great Depression. Putting up a large tree and putting on a large public spectacle with all of the logistics involved wasn't cheap. So, while the end result may have been the creation of a tradition and the spreading of Christmas cheer, whether in its secular or religious form, the actual motives were probably different. Christmas in itself was an event, and they were looking for events at that point. They were looking to draw attention to Rockefeller Center. The Empire State Building had been completed, the Chrysler Building was completed. The Empire State Building was on the verge of bankruptcy due to it being practically unoccupied, totally. And so what they were in the midst of doing, they were building a huge urban center, and they wanted to draw as much attention to it as possible. And to put up a Christmas tree at Christmas time and bring in trumpeters and choristers and make it a happy event in the midst of the Great Depression certainly brought it to a lot of people's attention. And I think from there they realized that it was an event that they could continue, and I think they could afford it. And that spectacle drew attention not only from people in New York who could be there physically to see it, but also to homes that had a radio. NBC broadcast the event on radio every year. A little difficult, naturally, to capture the full spectacle on the radio. And that period brought some pretty dramatic spectacles. They did a lot of things in the 40s. They had live reindeer roaming about in the lower plaza. And they were on loan from the Bronx Zoo. And they were cared for by a zookeeper. And they were named Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, and Cupid. Also during the 1940s was, of course, World War II. And in 1942, Rockefeller Center reflected the national mood with a special kind of tree not repeated since. They had three trees, red, white, and blue. So it was very patriotic. And while those early radio broadcasts attracted huge listening audiences, the Rockefeller Center tree lighting became a true broadcast phenomenon the following decade when it was televised for the first time in 1957. And for those radio broadcasts, it was important to have lots of trumpeters and bell ringers and choristers as part of the festivities. Otherwise, what else would there have been to listen to? But the advent of television changed the event itself. It became a visual event, and they had ice skating by this time. Then they'd be bringing in people who were stars on ice. Sonia Henney, for instance. Uh, We had Arthur Godfrey with Howdy Doody skating one year. I mean, all sorts of people lit the tree over the years, you know, not just the Rockefeller family themselves, but there were lots and lots of other celebrities who came to light the tree. That list of celebrity tree lighters has included Johnny Carson and Tony Bennett, and more recently, Pentatonix. Now, a large Christmas tree brings up a problem. What do you do with it after Christmas? You can't simply throw it on the curb on trash day like you and I do. Over the years, they have been put to good use in a number of creative ways. One of the first things it did was, uh, in the 30s, they would chop it up into logs and donate it to people in the city who wanted to burn it in their fireplaces. Then they chopped it up for mulch one year and donated that to Central Park. Then at one point, they donated it to Habitat for Humanity. So now, where do the trees come from? 
For years, it was the job of a crew to set out to find the tree each year. It was a whole to-do, and even at one point involved scouting missions in helicopters and following up on leads sent in from tipsters. Today, it works the other way around, with people reaching out to donate the tree. Sometimes it's a tree that's causing a problem on somebody's property. Which brings to mind this one tree from 1995. And it was a 75-foot Norway spruce that came from a convent in uh, New Jersey. And Rockefeller Center had seen this tree for several years and kept asking the sisters, would they like to donate? It had been planted in 1931 and it grew to be 75 feet high. And then finally the sisters realized that it might come toppling down on a nearby statue of St. Joseph. And so the nuns agreed that they would donate the tree. And prior to the tree departing for Rockefeller Center, it was blessed by the sisters. And all 104 nuns went to Rockefeller Center the night of the tree lighting. Today, we've come a long way from those early 40-foot trees and strings of 700 lights. The tree nowadays tends to be in the neighborhood of 80 feet and include about 50,000 lights on about five miles worth of wire. It also features a 900-pound star on top with three million Swarovski crystals. About two and a half million people will come to see it in person each year, and millions more will experience it through television and online. And nearly 90 years later, the Rockefeller Center tree remains an iconic symbol of Christmas time in the city, of Christmas in America, and of one of the official harbingers, along with Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, Black Friday, and the like, of the Christmas season. Finding each year's tree and producing the lighting event is a year-long process and a new opportunity each year to grow and evolve this enduring American tradition. The thing that about the Christmas tree at Rock Center is it's not stagnant. It's not a repeat every year. It's something new. and They work very hard to make it interesting and fun and contemporary. Well, one thing that doesn't often change is that favorite Christmas dessert that you've enjoyed season after season, maybe for your whole life. The one without which no Christmas dinner would be complete. Maybe you go for the pumpkin pie or the traditional steamed pudding. Me, I love fruitcake and I don't care who knows it. Enjoying those special Christmas treats together with family is a tradition that creates sweet memories like this one from Dale in London. My Christmas memory is about my nana, or grandmother for the non-Brits, and her affection for something quintessentially British, the trifle. While the word trifle has come to mean something of little value or importance, the dessert, which is a triumph of British cuisine, combining sherry-soaked sponge fingers and fruit covered in layers of jelly, custard and cream, was an essential part of our Christmas dinner. My nana was a small woman, her back becoming more bent with each passing year. She would eat slowly, finishing her dinner maybe 10 minutes after the rest of us. We'd have Christmas pudding with cream or ice cream, and that would be it for everyone. All of us too full to move, regretting wearing belted trousers instead of elasticated lounge pants. Not Nana though, there was still trifle. We'd all be sat round the table with the meat sweats, wondering where she found the space, as she would polish off dish after dish after dish of our homemade trifle. Just as we would start to think she had eaten enough, she would add another dollop to her bowl. Finally, she would settle down in her usual seat, throwing out the occasional witty put down to my dad when he was talking too much. Oh, and helping herself to the tin of toffees that did the rounds later in the evening. She's no longer with us, but I always smile to myself whenever the trifle is brought out at Christmas and remember 
how much love she had for her family and her trifle. Now, how about you? What's on your mind this Christmas season? Are you looking forward to any special indulgences? Have you ever seen the Rockefeller Center tree in person? Well, I want to know what makes Christmas special for you, and so would the rest of the Christmas Past family. Record a short voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it to about a minute, clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. I'll be back again in just a few days with an all-new story from Christmas Past. Until then, let me remind you that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thank you to Christine Roussel, David in London, and to you for listening. Let's stay connected all throughout the season and beyond. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and join our private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet. And you can drop me a line anytime with a Christmas memory or just to say hi. Again, that address is christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're really feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people discover the show? It's as easy as telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card is my way of saying thanks. Reach out for details on that. And until we meet again, may your days be merry and bright. <laughs>